0: The text before us is Acts 15, verses 1 through 21. And just to remind you, these are not ultimately the recorded acts of men. They're ultimately the recorded acts of the risen and ascended, ruling and reigning Jesus Christ by His Spirit through His church. Remember that. These are the acts of of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit through His church. So keeping that in mind, let's read now Acts 15, verses 1 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality, And from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, we tremble as we come before you. Because we know the power of your word. We know your great power the God who by his word created everything out of nothing. And that is the same God, our creator, who is our redeemer, who when there was nothing but spiritual death, spoke into existence spiritual life in us by your Holy Spirit. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come now before you longing to hear from your word, longing for you to communicate yourself to us in it, So help this weak preacher to faithfully proclaim your word. May Christ be exalted, and may we be drawn into closer fellowship with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as a result. We ask this for our edification, for your glorification, and for the ultimate salvation of those who have not heard the name of Jesus named, that the gospel might go forward to the ends of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, we pick up this morning where we left off last week in the book of Acts, and I don't know about you, it doesn't get old for me to go back and remind myself of what we've seen happening in the book of Acts. What we've seen happening in the book of Acts is Jesus fulfilling his promise that he made in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the Holy Spirit would come upon his apostles, on his church, and they would be his witnesses... In Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And as we've gone through our study, what we've seen gloriously is Jesus keeping that promise by His Spirit through His church, the gospel being preached in each one of these geographical locations. And what we've seen over the last several weeks The last probably several months isn't much of a stretch as we've looked at chapters 13 and 14 is we've seen the gospel going to the ends of the earth as the church in Antioch obeyed the call of God and sent out Paul and Barnabas to cross seas, cross oceans and mountains to declare the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to primarily uh, Gentiles. And what we've seen is that Gentiles in abundance have responded And so they're planting churches, and they're filled with joy as they see Jesus by his Spirit drawing the elect among the nations to himself. But along the way, we've also seen that they've experienced opposition and resistance and persecution. As a matter of fact, if you just go back one chapter and a few verses up, You see that at one point, uh, Paul was beaten by those who were outside of the church, those who didn't believe, was beaten and left for dead at Lystra. And so we've seen the intensity, the severity of this persecution from without. But now as we turn to Acts chapter 15, we're gonna see something a little bit different. We're gonna see that the opposition and persecution does not just come from without, it also comes from within. Because what we're gonna see happens here is that some brothers, some Jewish brothers, rise up in the midst of the church. Those who believe in Jesus, who say Jesus is the Messiah, raise up and preach a false gospel to the Gentiles in the churches, and they find a listening ear. We'll see why that is In a moment. But this false gospel, this persecution, this resistance, opposition to the true gospel that Paul and Barnabas are preaching is a great threat to the church. And it's a great threat for two reasons, two primary reasons. There's more reasons than just two. But the two primary reasons are, first of all, this false gospel seeks to obscure and eclipse the grace and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace and the glory of our triune God who has covenanted in eternity past to save a people graciously by his own work, not by any works of their own. So this false gospel seeks to to cover that up and obscure that glorious reality. And secondly, it also threatens to divide the church, to divide the body of Christ. As Christ is bringing in these Gentiles by His Spirit and these believing Jews as well, they have a unity in Christ. That he has won by his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and ascension. And this false gospel threatens to dismember, if you will, the body of Christ. And so this is why this false gospel must be rejected outright. And so what happens is the Jerusalem council is called. The first council in church history. And so what we're going to see this morning is Luke's dramatic retelling Which really, he's not adding the drama. He's just showing us the drama. Because these are, in fact, in and of themselves, dramatic events. But Luke retells them to us, these historical events that happened, in dramatic fashion. Which shouldn't surprise us, because Luke is a wonderful storyteller. But as we look through the text, I want us to see these four dramatic movements um, in this historical retelling that Luke gives us in Acts chapter 15. And here are those four movements. First of all, we're going to look at the problem in verses 1 through 5 that necessitated the Jerusalem council. Secondly, we'll look at the proofs that the apostles offer up as evidence for why this false gospel should be rejected in verses 6 through 12. Thirdly, we'll look at the prophecy, which is really the ultimate proof, the definitive proof that James offers as to how to reject this false gospel and how to think about the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God in verses 13 through 18. And fourthly, lastly, we'll look at the proclamation that the council, through the mouth of James then makes concerning these matters in verses 19 through 21. So let's look at each one of these then uh, as we go through the text. First, let's look at the problem in verses 1 through 5. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Now remember, chapter 15 comes on the heels of chapter 14. That's very helpful for me to point out, isn't it? And where chapter 14 left us was with Paul and Barnabas in Antioch in Syria, strengthening the churches, encouraging the churches. And while they're there, some Jewish brothers rise up. They're coming from Jerusalem. And they start to teach. They're not just just flying by the seat of their pants and preaching it once and then leaving. No, they're consistently teaching this false gospel, this message to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles would be quick to listen to them, these believing Gentiles, because they have great respect for the Jewish believers. They've been steeped in the scriptures their whole life. And so surely they have something important to tell us. And if they're telling us something, we're going to believe that it's true. And they probably came, these Jewish teachers, claiming authority from the apostles in Jerusalem and potentially even authority from the apostle James himself. But what is their false gospel? Their false gospel is, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now again, as I said earlier, these Jewish believers, um, they would not deny that you have to believe in Jesus. They would say Jesus is the Messiah, but that's not enough. Jesus isn't sufficient. Belief in him is not enough. You have to add something to it. And what you have to add to it is circumcision. And as we see in verse 5, it's not just circumcision, but also keeping the entire law of Moses. Now you can imagine the disturbance that this would have caused the Gentile believers, right? Paul and Barnabas come through their area, preach the good news of Jesus. They believe, they're elated, they're saved, they have forgiveness of their sins, communion with the triune God. They're so thankful for Paul and Barnabas and this gospel they preached. But now these Jewish believers come and say, that's not enough. Don't you know you have to be circumcised? Don't you know you have to obey the Mosaic law? It's always been that way. It's been that way for 1,500 years, so why do you think that it's now changed? You can imagine the disturbance that this brought to them, this false gospel. And so what's the response of Paul and Barnabas? Do they do what most churches do nowadays in our postmodern age? What is truth? You've got your truth, I've got mine. You've got your gospel, I've got mine. Why don't we just love each other? Can't we just all get along? Why don't we do a service project together? That, that doctrine stuff, no creed but Jesus. All right, but what, who is Jesus? What gospel does he preach? What good news does Jesus come declaring? So Paul and Barnabas, they're not like us, and they don't give in the temptation to just try to have peace at all costs. Instead, what do they do? They address this false gospel that threatens to obscure the glory of Christ and the unity of the church. We see that in verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas, (laughs) I love Luke's wording here, had no small dissension and debate with them. In other words, this was a no holds barred. I mean, every, every argument is coming out. They are just going after it. This is an intense intellectual argument going back and forth. Neither side is backing down. Paul and Barnabas doggedly sticking to the gospel they received from the Lord Jesus, and the Jewish believers sticking to their guns as far as this false gospel is concerned and the place of the Mosaic law and really the place of works in order for Gentiles to be able to be saved. But neither side budges, so in the rest of verse 2 we see that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. Now, they're actually north of Jerusalem but you're always going up to Jerusalem, no matter which direction you're coming from, because Jerusalem's on a hill, just so you know. So you're not like, wait, isn't that an error in the Bible? No. It's a figure of speech. You always go up to Jerusalem. Um, and when you're leaving Jerusalem, you're always coming down from Jerusalem. That was, that was for free. Um, and so they're going up to Jerusalem uh, to the apostles and elders about this question. Listen, you guys can't come to a, a conclusion. Paul and Barnabas are, are, are doggedly sticking to their story, their gospel message, and the false uh, teachers are sticking to theirs. So why don't you go down to Jerusalem? It's not for us to, just to d- decide this. Take it before the church at Jerusalem. Take it before the elders and the apostles and let them make an official, formal statement about this. And so being sent on their way, so they're on their trip now, it's about 250 miles south from Antioch in Syria to Jerusalem. So they're on their way, and Paul and Barnabas decide, you know what, as we go through all of these cities, we're going to stop at the churches, and we're going to let them know what Jesus has been doing amongst the Gentiles, how he's been drawing them to himself. And so they go, and as they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria, by the way, the church sent them on their way, meaning that the church paid for this expensive trip. They're going with the church's blessing. And they describe in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and great, brought great joy to all the brothers. These other churches hear about what Jesus is doing amongst the Gentiles and they rejoice, which as a side note, as you see other gospel-preaching churches in town grow and you hear about conversions of new folks coming into the church, what should be our response? We should rejoice. Even as these, these churches do, as Paul and Barnabas talk about what Jesus had been doing by the Spirit in their midst as they proclaimed the gospel. Verse 4, then they get to Jerusalem, and they're welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. And again, the Jerusalem church now rejoices with them in all that God had done amongst the Gentiles. But here comes the problem again. Verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up And said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here's the problem that's presented that requires the input and the declaration, really, of the Jerusalem council. The problem is really twofold. On the one hand, what is the place of the Mosaic law? Because for 1,500 years, if you were a Gentile and wanted to come into the covenant people of God, you had to go through the rites of the Mosaic law. Be circumcised, observe the dietary restrictions, the kosher laws, the ceremonies, the sacrifices. That was the only way for you to come in. But now that they're in the new covenant that Jesus has come, and the old covenant is fading away, and we've really got this this overlapping time of these two time periods, and the church is really in reformation. It's a unique time with unique problems. What is the place of the Mosaic law? Do, do they have to obey it once they're, 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 they come to Christ, once they're Christians? That's the first question. The second question is the more important question, although they're both important. Are we saved by our works? Or is it by grace alone through faith alone in the Messiah in the Lord Jesus Christ alone? Which is it? Because that's what they're saying. It's required, it's necessary that you be circumcised. Otherwise, you can't be saved. So these are the two questions that are posed to the Jerusalem council. This is the problem that requires them to address it. So we've seen the problem. Now let's look at the proofs that are presented at the council. We'll see that in verses 6 through 12. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider... This matter. So who's, who makes up the Jerusalem council? It's the apostles and the elders. And they're to consider this matter of um, what's the place of the Mosaic Law and are we saved by our works? And after there had been much debate, oh, to know what that debate looked like. Luke does not satiate our curiosity, does he? He's got a very specific story and theme that he's showing us here. And so he doesn't give us those details, but I would love for us to be able to discover those notes somewhere. But anyway, apparently the Lord doesn't want us to have them. So there's much debate. Peter stands up and he says to him, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now what in the world is Peter talking about here? Peter's referencing back to Acts chapter 10 when he was called by God to go to Cornelius by an angel to preach the gospel to this God-fearing Gentile who was not circumcised, who was not observing the Mosaic law, but who was a God-fearer. And, and so, obviously, if you remember, Peter has some resistance to this because he doesn't want to become unclean. I've got to go to his house and become unclean, Lord? I don't want to do that. And yet the Lord gives him this vision, and he shows it to him three times because Peter's so resistant to going. And and Jesus says, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. Go to him, preach the gospel to him. And so he does, Cornelius believes, his household believes, and there's a mini Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down upon these Gentiles who did not come into the covenant people of God through the Jewish rites, through the, the Mosaic rites of circumcision and obeying the law. And so what Peter's really saying here is, listen, God's the one who did this. I wasn't looking for a ministry opportunity to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, I resisted it. But Jesus called me to do this. This was his work. This is what he did. It goes on in verse 8 and says, And God, who knows the heart, who is the heart-knower, literally in the Greek, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Peter says, remember how we received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? We Jews had received it, we believing Jews, they received it, these Gentiles did in the exact same way. But note the difference, they had not been circumcised and they were not observing the law of Moses, and yet they received the promised spirit. The promise that was promised to Abraham that Jesus has received and now sent out is pouring out on his church and on the Gentiles, they received the Holy Spirit the same way that we did And he made no distinction between us and them, verse 9, having cleansed their hearts by faith. That was always the thing in the Old Testament, wasn't it? Am I clean? Can I approach a holy God? Am I clean? Jesus comes and says, listen, ultimately no one is clean, are they? We're all unclean because what makes a man unclean is not what goes into him, the food that he eats or what he touches, it's what comes out of a man, his heart. Mark chapter 7. And we're all filthy, aren't we? We're all filthy. And so God makes no distinction. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore. He cleansed their hearts by faith so that they could have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, therefore, all right, what's the place of the Mosaic law? Here's what Peter says, verse 10. Why are you putting God to the test? That's a reference again and again in the Old Testament to how Israel tested the Lord when they didn't believe his promises, when they didn't walk in faithful obedience to his laws and his commands, they put God to the test. And now, Peter's saying, that's what you're doing. By teaching this false gospel, brothers, why are you doing this? And how are they putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, these Gentiles who are coming into the church in droves. You're putting a yoke on them that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. It was an unbearable yoke. Listen, when Moses came down with it from the mountain, they'd already broken it before he got to the bottom. And what's their history again and again? They're disobeying God. They're disobeying God. They're turning away from him again and again and again. We could never keep it. It was a constant reminder of our failures to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why are you putting that now on them? Why? And really the ultimate answer is that we shouldn't do that because the Mosaic law, circumcision, they were all types and shadows. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. But the reality that they pointed to, they were just signs that pointed to Jesus, the coming Messiah who was promised on every page of Scripture. He's now come. So now that we have the reality, why would you want the types and shadows? The types and shadows are inappropriate. Brief illustration that I wasn't planning on bringing up. My my wife and I have a child in utero. We treasure these little... Uh, ultrasound pictures we have of him it's ridiculous and most of them he looks like a burn victim but just keeping it real it's true but can you imagine now if if he's going to be born in a month from today lord willing can you imagine if he comes out and i'm just you know i just ignore him and i'm so enamored with the pictures dude the reality's come put the pictures away he's here and that's basically what Peter is saying. That's what Paul says again and again and again. We were once under tutelage because we were in our infancy, but now that Christ has come, now that the heir's come, that, that's gone and done away with. Jesus was cut off in our place on the cross, so there's no place for circumcision. And, and he took our uncleannesses upon himself on the cross, and, and the, the way he fulfilled the law... Not abolished it, Matthew chapter 5, but a fulfilled it. He's now given that righteousness to us. So we're clean by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And don't miss, so one, the Mosaic law. Uh, now, when I say Mosaic law, we're talking about circumcision, the ceremonies. We're not talking about the Ten Commandments. The moral law still stands. But it's not binding on Christians anymore. The Ten Commandments are not the ceremonies and the types and shadows because the reality has come. But the second thing that Peter says, look at verse 11, is, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Listen, folks. It has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the Scriptures, all to the praise and glory of God alone so that no man can boast. Peter says that's not new. That's not new to the new covenant. They're saved just as we are, with the exception of the Mosaic law now, now fading into the background. But you can imagine what a struggle this is, right? And we're going to see how this struggle, even though they definitively answer it here, shows up and so they, they, they address it. Well, you see it all throughout the, the New Testament, right? Paul, How many times does Paul have to address this struggle? You've got Gentiles who aren't observing the Mosaic law, and Jews whose consciences have been attuned by the Mosaic law, and now they're to live together as one people in the one body of of Christ. Because Jesus bought that unity. It is a reality, and they're to live in light of it. So that's Paul's constant exhortation, but I'm getting slightly ahead of myself. So these are the proofs that Peter offers. Then Paul and Barnabas get up, In verse 12, and and it says, and all the assembly fell silent. You can imagine how shocking what Peter is saying here. So he speaks, and then they listen next to Barnabas and Saul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, what's the point of what Paul and Barnabas are saying here? Paul and Barnabas, remember, signs and wonders are not ultimately to um, heal sick people or or cure some... uh, 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 oppression by a demon they do that but that's not their ultimate purpose their ultimate purpose is to validate that this is in fact what is happening a work of the triune god and to validate that here's a sign and here's a wonder and we see in the previous chapters chapters 13 and 14 paul and barnabas are doing them like crazy and so they bring these as examples as proof that this is the lord's work The Lord's bringing them in, doing signs and wonders, giving them the Holy Spirit without going through the rites of Judaism and without any works that they've done on their part. So these are the proofs that the apostles are offering as evidence for why they should reject this false gospel and how it should shape their understanding of the place of the Mosaic law for these Gentiles. So we've looked at the proofs, now let's look thirdly at the prophecy, which is really another proof, really the definitive proof. We have um, the experiences of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, and what the Lord has done, but even those experiences that God has wrought, they need to be validated and interpreted by what? By Scripture. Sola Scriptura. So where does James take us? He takes us to one of the Old Testament prophets. We see that in verses 13 through 18. Here's the prophecy. After they finish speaking... James replied, brothers, which by the way, that's, Peter says brothers, James says brothers. You see the graciousness of these guys as leaders? Isn't your temptation to be like, false teachers, false teachers, you're not really believers, get out of here. He calls them brothers, which for us, can, can true believers believe false doctrine, e- even a false gospel? Every single one of us here, by the way, believes in false doctrine one to, in one, to one degree or another. Now, as soon as we realize it, we want to repent of it and turn away from it. But this side of heaven, our theology is never perfectly squared away. doesn't mean that we don't address bad theology and false gospels. But it doesn't mean that you're not a believer. How are you going to respond to the truth when you hear it, when you're corrected? That's really the question. He calls them brothers. He says, listen to me. Simeon has related, that's Peter, by the way, how God first visited the Gentiles, going back to Cornelius, to take from them a people for his name. Very interesting language. In the Old Testament, God puts his name upon Israel as the chosen nation amongst all the nations. Well, James says he does the exact same thing amongst all the Gentiles. He has an elect people among the Gentiles. Cornelius was a part of that. And all of these Gentiles who are believing, God has put his name upon them. By giving them the Holy Spirit. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Don't just believe my what I'm saying, James says. Amos agrees with me. So he takes us to Amos chapter nine, just as it is written, and he quotes Amos chapter nine verses eleven and twelve. I want to remind you of the context of Amos chapter nine verses eleven and twelve. I had to look it up. Don't worry, I don't. I don't anticipate that most of you uh, know what the context is. But basically, the Lord is pronouncing the judgment and the desolation that's going to come upon Israel for their sin and rebellion. Sound familiar? Yeah, and how the house of David is just going to be decimated. I mean, the picture that Amos uses is not of a broken-down castle or palace or kingdom. It's a rinky-dink tent, two sticks put in the dirt with a sheet on top, and even that's collapsed. The kingdom that God promised, that Yahweh promised in 2 Samuel 7 seven, eleven, to David, that he would raise up a seed, a son for him that would establish a kingdom, and he would rule on, the, on that throne forever, it, has that promise failed? Because look at the house of David's in ruins. It's a dilapidated old tent that some kid made in the backyard. And then when we get to chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, the whole tenor of the prophecy changes, and the Lord says, what? After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it what is James saying that Amos is saying here Jesus has come and he's rebuilding the house of David Jesus is that promised offspring to David David's greater son who would establish the kingdom and would rule forever and ever and that's what we saw happen at Pentecost Jesus as his coronation ceremony if you will And he pours out the Spirit. He receives all the promises of the old covenant. He receives the promise of Abraham and Moses and David. And ultimately, that promise is the Holy Spirit. And now he's pouring out his Spirit on the Gentiles. Psalm 2 I will give you the nations. We see that happening. And so really what James is saying Amos is saying is you know you know what the place of these gentiles who are coming in in droves who the Lord is setting his name upon graciously saving by grace saving them from their spiritual death this is proof that Israel is being restored not a political earthly kingdom although that will come at the end of all kings when the the, the end of all things the end of all kings too When the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. But now it's a spiritual kingdom that manifests itself where? In the church. And so what James is saying, what Amos is saying, is the inclusion of the Gentiles is proof that Israel is being restored. The triune God is keeping his promise. Jesus, as David's greater son, who is the true Israel, is the one who you need to be united to in order to be a true Israelite. And so that's what we see happening with the Gentiles. Definitive proof. Which makes me stop and go, do we think about our salvation that way, brothers and sisters? I'm guessing the majority of us here are Gentiles. Maybe we've got a few, few uh, who have uh, Jewish descent, but we're Gentiles. And... Our salvation is proof that Jesus is restoring Israel. The existence of sovereign grace as a church is proof that Jesus is restoring Israel as the Davidic king. Think about that. Why are we so excited to send out missionaries? To see more proof that Jesus is restoring Israel. That's what James is saying here. This is the definitive proof. They're being brought into the people of God without Moses, without circumcision. And this is, rather than a hindrance to what Jesus said he's going to do, this is proof that he's doing. This is his work. It really seals the deal. Now, there's some practical implications of this that are very specific to the Jews and the Gentiles of the time. And so James then says, based on this truth, I now want to make a proclamation. Here's what I think we should do. And we see the proclamation in verses 19 through 21. Look there with me. Therefore, my judgment, this is James still speaking, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, what James is saying is, do you understand if we were to require them to jump through the hoops of the Mosaic Law and require them to be circumcised, God forbid require them to perform a certain number of works before we even consider them saved. We're doing nothing but troubling them. We're putting a stumbling block in their way. We're tripping them up if we do that. So my judgment is that we don't do that. (laughs) That we do not test the Lord by requiring them to obey the Mosaic law. Okay, so, well, here's the problem. Doesn't that now leave the Gentiles the opportunity to flaunt their freedom, right? Again, the Gentiles for centuries have had their consciences shaped and formed, informed by the Mosaic law. What's clean, what's not clean, what I can do, what I can't do. And God commanded that, by the way, and now that's gone and done away with because Jesus is here. So, I'm still... My conscience is still bent that way and now these Gentiles come in and they can eat ham and they can participate in these things that, that, that my conscience won't allow me to. So think about the sensitivities here. So are the Gentiles now just to flaunt that freedom that they have in the faces of the believing Jews? Paul has a lot to say about this, doesn't he? He says, don't use that liberty that you have just to, to, to please the flesh and do whatever you want. You've been given freedom, you've been given liberty in the new covenant so that you can love and serve your neighbor. So what does that look like in this context? Now, I want to give you a heads up. You're going to have to do some research if you want to figure this out on your own. I'm going to tell you my view, but verses 20 and 21 are very controversial. All sorts of various scholars take different approaches to this. I'm going to tell you the one that makes the most sense to me, and I think it's very clear from the text personally. But I think it's fair that you know that there's a lot of controversy about this. So what does it look like for the Gentiles to not flaunt this freedom that they have? Verse 20, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So don't participate. These are all pagan practices, by the way, that would be part and parcel of the Gentiles' lives as they're coming out of this paganism that they've been steeped in for centuries. And, and, and Paul's saying, don't participate in these things because they're going to be offensive to your Jewish brothers, and it's going to bring division amongst the Jews and the Gentiles. And the proof of that, I think, from the text, that that's what he's actually saying Is verse 21? For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. In other words, James is saying, listen, their conscience has been formed by this for centuries. You think they're just going to be able to push that away? No. So as their consciences are reformed to the word of God, as this dispensation is now gone and done away with, the old covenant, the Mosaic law, don't flaunt your freedom in their face. Love them. Serve them. Be willing to, to stifle your freedom, if you will, so that you can love them. And when we're walking with Jesus and when we have the big picture in, in before our eyes, this is what we rejoice to do. We rejoice to give up certain things for our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can love them and serve them with this freedom and this liberty that we have. But do you see how the letter and the, the Jerusalem council hits both sides? On the one hand, the Jews have these convictions that they hold very tightly. We can understand why. But that dispensation's now gone and done away with. They're still going to live in light of those convictions, as they should. Again, the problem is not those convictions. It's if you think that you're going to be saved by those. The church is in Reformation, so there's eventually going to go away. But don't, don't put that on other people's consciences believing Jews. You you know that God is your judge, so you live that way before him, but don't put that on other people's consciences. So it hits that side. They have a weaker conscience, actually, in this this scenario. And then on the other hand, they're they're talking to the, the believing Gentiles saying, don't flaunt this freedom that you have. Brothers and sisters, if you can't see how applicable this is to us today, Let me just assure you, it is very applicable to us today. Because what we see within various generations within the church, certain things are seen as acceptable and other things aren't. That has to do with the times we live in, the cultures that we live in. And are we sensitive enough to not demand that everybody else holds our convictions on things that Scripture doesn't speak about, but we have convictions about them? How do we use entertainment in our lives What's our approach to education? Do we homeschool, public school, private school? Do we dance? How do we... You'll laugh, but that's, that's, a, that's a live issue for some. What kind of food do we eat? It's a live issue for people. You may have very strong convictions about it, but if the Scriptures don't speak about it, don't you demand somebody else live that way and, or, or look down on them in arrogance for how they don't. And then on the flip side usually for us younger generation. I won't define that. You can figure out if you think you are a part of the younger generation. And everybody is at one point in time. But we look at some of the the things that the church required, and we go, that's ridiculous. Where is that in Scripture? We're not to flaunt that freedom. We're not to, to use that in such a way that it causes our brother or sister to stumble. Because the shocking thing that this council says is that really the Mosaic Law is an indifferent matter now. As the church is in this Reformation, it's going to be gone and done away with, which is great news for us, by the way, because I don't think anyone in here observed the Mosaic Law this week. So according to the, the false teachers, none of us would be saved. This is gone and done away with. Our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, a couple ways that that was one way of application. A few more points of application. Secondly, note that this false teaching arises from within the church. Folks, I'm not going to admonish you to go around and be suspicious of everybody in the church. They're your brothers and sisters in Christ. Christ has shed his blood to buy them and redeem them and make them his own. But we have to understand, false teaching is going to arise from our own number. It is potentially from even our own leaders at this church. Now, we don't need to go out and die on every hill. There's plenty of things that we disagree on, and we need to have charity in those non-essentials. But when it's an essential issue, we need to be willing to fight, not physically, don't, get, don't misunderstand, but to engage in fighting for the truth, arguing, debating, saying, This is not true. This is true, even as Paul and Barnabas did. And don't be shocked when you hear a fellow brother or sister in Christ teach something that's not true. We we all do not have our theology perfect. I certainly don't. And so there's there's a a sense in which we are to be very patient with one another. doesn't mean that we don't correct each other. Absolutely we do. But we need to understand that error is in the church, even as we see it here and I think the last thing that I really want to highlight, really the most important thing that I do not want you to miss, if you, by the way, we're going to talk more about this, Christ, this idea of Christian liberty and how to wisely think this through, right? Because I just skimmed the surface. There's a whole lot more that we need to talk about. We're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks as we continue to go through Acts chapter 15. But the thing that I really want you to walk away with here is, do you see how glorious Jesus is? What a glorious Savior He is. Look at how He preserves His church. These threats were real. These threats were were potentially going to obscure His glory. The character of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the fact that it's all of grace so that they receive all the glory. This false gospel uh, threatened to obscure that, and yet Jesus says, nope. By My Spirit, the church will hold fast to the true gospel. I will save them to the uttermost so that they can behold my glory together. And he also preserves the unity of the church. He bled and died and lived to secure that unity. It's a reality that is ours. And this false gospel threatened to tear it apart. Jew against Gentile. Believing Jew against believing Gentile. And yet Jesus kept the unity of the church intact. All that James and the the apostles are saying here is live in light of that unity that is yours in Jesus. So do you see how glorious a Savior Jesus is? How loving, how committed he is to his own glory being proclaimed and shown in his church. I don't know about you, but as we go through various seasons, sovereign grace, that brings a great consolation to me. As an under-shepherd of the good shepherd, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The church is not mine. The church is not ours as your leader's. We are mere under-shepherds of Jesus, who is the good shepherd. The body belongs to him. And he will keep us to the uttermost. What a glorious Savior our Heavenly Father has given us. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that salvation is all of grace. Nothing we can do to earn it. Nothing we can do to lose it. Jesus has given it to us as a gift. He purchased it at great cost that we might receive it freely. And so we thank you that your Spirit has regenerated us. We thank you that... Our salvation and the existence of sovereign grace is proof, Jesus, that you are restoring Israel and that we live in this time when we're no longer under the tutor of the Mosaic law. Oh, the freedoms that we enjoy. Jesus, you purchased those for us. May we rejoice in them, enjoy them, may we use them wisely to build each other up, not to tear each other down, not to look down on each other, not to judge each other, not to, to mock each other by the convictions that we don't share. Oh, may we live in light of the unity that is ours ultimately so that the gospel might go forward from this place to the ends of the earth. We love you and we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.